You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Amaranth Borsak. Amaranth, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for inviting me, Brainerd. Amaranth, we're talking on October 27th in 2021. You're in Seattle. Uh, we're going to talk about writing and you're going to read uh, some poems, but I, I, I'm wondering how was the last a year and a half for you in terms of, of writing, your practice, all the, all the work that you're doing, how did it um, I don't know, change or, or impact what you're doing? Um, in some ways, it impacted what I'm doing a lot, and then in some ways, not at all. Um, my, the past year and a half was marked for me definitely by pandemic, and at the start of the pandemic, I was on sabbatical, and I was really, you know, um, at home working toward a next book project and and both working on some scholarly work around artist books as they relate to the human body and then also um, creative work around a book of poems that had been kind of simmering for me for a while and that grew out of um, experiments that I do with students in my graduate MFA classes. And while I was uh, working on that and sort of finding a rhythm and a routine, uh, with a, a like one and a half year old at home, um, I uh, you know suddenly uh, the world seemed to shift both because of pandemic and because of um, a lot of the civil unrest of the last year and a half. And um, what I what what that sort of like um, shifting of the ground beneath my feet did for me was that it made me feel very um, uncomfortable in my own head. And both, both wanting to hear voices outside of my own, and then also um, it became much harder for me to find and make time for writing because I, I didn't have childcare anymore, and had to my spouse and I became the caregivers, full-time caregivers for our daughter. So uh, I, I went back to a collaboration that had been on the back burner for a long time, uh, something I started in 2015. And my collaborator and I both found ourselves suddenly with both um, a stronger urge to feel connected because we were both separated by distance and knew that we were not going to be able to see each other in person for a long time. And then also we, we had the kind of luxury of being able to be in touch in a way we wouldn't normally in the summer because she travels a lot um, for her work. So uh, I think that pandemic um, – brought back to me something that's always been a value, which is I, I love to collaborate. I love working with other people, both who are writers, but also people from other disciplines and other art forms. And really, like, my most of my work for the last year has been collaborative and working um, in both cases with women who, uh, who I really value and who also both happen to be mothers. Um, and that's, I think, part of my changing identity as an artist and writer and seeking out a community of other mothers um, who, you know, maybe have dealt with some of the same challenges and also, um, you know, miracles and, and exciting uh, experiences that I've had. Mm, it's so interesting here because it does shift everything, doesn't it? Yeah, when, when I had a child, you know, um, and it just, it just changes everything. And there are people that relate to that and people that completely don't relate to that. You know, it's like there's, <laughs> there's, there's quickly two worlds. I, I, I remember my wife and I meeting a curator and we're like bending over backwards trying to get a babysitter and make this all work as if we like don't have a child and really have the flexibility of just meeting somebody, you know? Right. And, um, and it was so strange because during the talk, the curator said to me, 
And they, they were asking, we're a collaborative, and she was asking us, you know, could we do this one thing in the museum? And I said, well, you, don't you have an artist that was in, like, you know, the recent biennial that does just that? And she said, well, yeah, but I just love working with people who have kids. And I was like, oh, we're <laughs> one kid. And I was just like, what? You know, it, it, it seems like that's not what you hear kind of in the yeah. art world or in the world of writing, right? It's, it's almost as though kids are... Um, I don't know, it somehow sets you apart or it puts you in a different group, right? Right, yeah, I think that's very true. And, I'm, you know, I don't know if you felt this way um, prior to having children, but I think for a long time for me as a creative person, it really felt like my creative practice and my students were my babies. And those were the things that, that a lot of that, um, that side of myself went into. And it didn't even occur to me that I might want to have a, have a child of my own. Um, I, I, I feel like that required a fundamental shift in how I think about my identity as an artist, my creative practice, and, and my family. That was a big shift for me. Yeah, that's, that, that's so interesting. And, and to talk about that one project uh, before we start reading, because there's so many things you've done that I'm really interested in, but the artist's book that you were doing um, or, or, or working with and how they relate to the to the body. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because, you know, then, you know, that may, I don't know, feed into being a mother, but also I'm very interested in artist books and it's, it's such an interesting medium in itself. Uh, what did you mean by how they relate to the body? Sure. Yeah. Well, so it's a project that grows out of the book that I did for MIT press called the book where I was um, examining the book as an object, as content that goes into an artifact as an idea that we have about books and then as an interface and trying to kind of track the mutation of what we think of as the book over time from its you know prehistory into the future um, and a large part of that book writing that book for me involved looking at artist books as um, kind of um, you know outlier cases that because they are so um, careful and thoughtful about the way that they integrate and interrogate book form, give us a really useful object lesson in what books even are, because they're always making us think about and question how books function, how we relate to them, uh, how we interact with them. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time looking at artist books when I was working on that. And there were two or three examples of artist books that I ended up talking about where I really felt like I'm only able to address them in a really cursory fashion because of the subject matter of that project. Um, but that if I had more space and time, I would really want to think through what these particular works were doing with the relationship between books and bodies. And specifically, there are artist books that um, integrate hair and, and, and sort of um, and, and other bodily materials into their production, as well as um, using a kind of reliquary format where they sort of seem to be um, almost like little, uh, yeah, like, like a reliquary, right, for um, artifacts that are artifacts that come out of books, but that are made to look sort of like the religious relic or something, you know, a piece of fabric from a saint or um, uh, the ashes that you're collecting in, a, in an urn from a loved one. Um, and so that sort of started me on this interest in exploring artist books as they relate to the body in a broader sense, you know, both the way that artists 
books always implicate the reader's body in some way in their um, interaction. Also, the way in which books historically are made from materials that come from bodies, uh, come from animal bodies and plant bodies and human bodies, um, very rare cases, but sometimes human, human bodies. Um, and then also the way that artist books uh, can use that relationship in a way that makes us think fundamentally about things like race and gender and, uh, and even uh, ecology and our relationship to the environment. So that's the kind of, that's the trek that I am very, very slowly taking now uh, mm. as, you know, as we're all, I think, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like a lot of my work has been slowed down by um, pandemic, the ongoing and continuous pandemic life. Absolutely. It's, it's slowed down a lot of things, and I suppose sped up others, you know, these kind of mm-hmm. Zoom everything has, has certainly sped up um, a certain type of interactivity. And uh, so that's exciting about the artist books. Um, is that, does that continue? That's an ongoing kind of investigation of yours? With the, with the yes, class? absolutely. I would say definitely an ongoing investigation. I haven't integrated it into my teaching yet, because um, I feel like I'm still in my own investigative stages. But I feel like I'm, I'm working toward maybe a series of essays that hopefully will cohere into something that looks like a book, however we define that word. Right, because then you have to, you have to yeah, be creative with a book. Yeah, there's so many things to be creative with. I, I, I just received a book in the mail today, not to digress too much, but uh, McSweeney's has a quarterly that they do. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, usually it's just fiction and it's in a nice hardbound book. Occasionally they've done kind of odd packages. This one, I haven't even opened it yet completely because it's so beautiful, but it comes in a box. It's called The Audio Issue. There's like scrolls and keychains and, you know, all these things you unpack in there that are part of mm-hmm. this fiction issue, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It really is a type of artist book, and, and that's kind of a not quite mass market, I guess, but that's um, – but it's similar, and it, 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 totally. I, I guess an intent. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and, clo- and close to it. I mean, I do think that McSweeney's is one of a one of a, a handful of publishers that really are experimenting with publishing formats, um, and I think responding to a desire on the part of readers to have a different kind of tactile experience with reading uh, in, in this moment where it feels like whether this is true or not is another question, but it feels as though you could read the same novel um, on an iPad, on your computer, or in a paper or hardbound volume. And sort of that, that feeling that, that the book has been dematerialized has brought a lot of a craving for material forms that, are, that require us to interact with them in a way that reminds us that, that the book is a physical artifact and that it does uh, require some sort of manipulation to access and enter that's so interesting. Yeah, that's that that, you know, I think desktop publishing kind of did that, right? These printers, you know, suddenly was there was a revival in letterpress printing, you know, which which was mm-hmm. odd, right? So that's a very interesting mm-hmm. thing you're saying that it revives that kind of tactile nature because, though I normally read books, I recently um, bought two books, kind of for myself for my birthday, but they were both books that were pretty old because the pages were uncut. And you know, oh. they used to make books like that. I think that was like 40s yeah. or something. But the pages are uncut. So, you know, there's not that many of them around because people cut them a little bit. But you literally have to, like, cut open, you know, every page that you're reading. And that seemed to me, I haven't read it yet, but I have it. It's such a kind of, kind of beautiful experience because you're, 
you, you know, you, you're, you, you realize you're the first one that's read this page. Um, right. And right, and it really and, changes and, your relationship with the idea of the page because, of course, any mass market paperback you pick up, it's been sitting on the shelf. You're, you're probably the first person to crack that version, but it doesn't ha- have nearly the same ceremony um, as having to slice right. a page. Right, and even with this book, so are, it's not that I feel like, oh, 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 I'm behind, I haven't read it. I'm, I'm waiting for like the perfect moment to put it on like an <laughs> altar and open it one page at a time. I don't know how I'm going to read it, but it feels like it should be revered somehow. You know? Right, um, it feels like the act of reading is going to be a kind of performance. Are you going to document it in some way? I kind of thought about that. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to because it's, you know, you're making these beautiful pages. They're like deckled edges. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I will somehow. Um, mm-hmm. It's great talking about books and artist books. I know that's something you're intimately involved in. Let's talk about your writing and um, and your and your poetry specifically. I know you you have a few picked out today. What is the the first one you're reading? Where is it from? Yeah. Um, so this is a, a poem called Whisper Campaign. Um, and it was published in the Cordite Poetry Review, and it's just from a collection that I'm working on. Whisper Campaign. The game of telephone is a game of Russian scandal, where what goes in one air comes out the hotter, and overhead nothing swoons like anything less. In the middling, minor things set, a shifty swift adds interest to the Hessian. Though, as always, hope's ploy reveals our hodden addenda, what raiment means lost and what beheld. Hostage in the park, we each have nothing to say, and so we blow handsomely into someone else's war. Soman holds out harp that moaning will pass, that Ruth will come through like lacquer. We orange our faces to token the casket of reaccession, secluding our dominion effect. Meanwhile, it seems the weld is also watching, but what does it mutter? Willem and Whale, we hear nothing. We wait for the white noise to die down. Thank you. I I feel like I should be more almost like hooting and hollering, you know. Um, (laughs) That's that's a great poem, and, um, and, and, and sorry if this is the wrong connection, but, you know, it reminds me, partly because of the way you're reading it, but, but also um, the content that it would work well for kind of public reading slams where people are, are reacting in real time to, to little mm-hmm. bits of sentences you're saying that, that, you know, really strike a chord. Um, is, 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 am I really stretching it there? I know some poets hate slams. Or I don't know what the politics around that is. <laughs> No, I, you're not stretching at all. I really, I love slam poetry, and I don't think that I have the real skills that, that true slam poets have, but I truly admire that art. And, um, and when I you know, started, started having work published and having to read it publicly, I did have to go through a kind of rethinking of how I perform my work, because I think I was trained on or, or raised on the kind of poetry reading that's fairly quiet and that um, involves sharing a poem and then telling a story about it and then, and then telling another story that introduces the next poem. And, um, and it, it felt for a while like that was a performance that I, that I had to be part of and sort of had to replicate. And um, as, as I started having work published and being able to share it broadly, 
I feel like I was, I, I guess I gave myself permission to envision other ways of performing the work, um, particularly with, with stuff like these newer poems in which I think a lot of what's happening in these is has to do with sound play and um, things that sound like they mean one thing but might mean something else. And for me, in order to, to bring out some of the, in, in, not even intent, but sort of like submerged meanings within the poem, it requires tone and performance, I think just to even create a sense that there's, there's a human speaking these words um, and there are emotions behind these words, whether or not they can cohere into a meaningful statement um, that at least you hear like a human, a human voice, a human body um, with care, trying to, trying to express something even if it totally fails to. Right. And that's so different than, um, that's so well put and so different, of course, than reading it, right? We have a very different experience reading the poem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, 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 it's meant to be read, but you, so in coming up with the way you present yourself or perform yourself, um, perform your, your poetry, what were the influences? How did you come up with this, with this way of, um, because it's specific. The words are, right, emphasized in certain ways that, that, you know, allows the reader to pay attention in, in, in certain, which is why I think it brought up this, the, 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 the kind of narrow notion of a slam, just certain phrases mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of ring out and seem like, you know, they'd get part of the audience going or something, you know, because of the way, yeah, you're, you're, you're delivering it because of the nuances of, of, um, yeah, of your voice. Thanks. Well, my, you know, I, hard to say who my influences are in terms of the performance aspect, but definitely um, I think having a background in vocal performance and theater from when I was a lot younger has a big influence on how I present the work. And um, to be honest, I think that it's, it's the act of reading and being in front of audiences that has shaped so much my sense of how, how to make this work audible. Because when you're standing in front of a room full of people and looking at the faces of of the assembled, you know, people who have generously given up time to, of all things, listen to someone in tone poetry. I mean, you know, God bless the people who attend poetry readings. Like, that's such an act of generosity to want to witness someone else's writing. Um, and sort of looking out and seeing, like, I don't want any of you to be yawning. I don't want you to feel um, uh, like your time would have been better spent elsewhere. Um, and so maybe it comes a little bit out of like the um, the desire to please in me as a as a human mm. and as a as a writer to to try and put on a little bit of a show, um, and especially knowing that with experimental work, it there are barriers to understanding, and if if immediate meaning, which is like very often the thing that we can hold on to at a reading, which is like oh I recognize that image or um, that's, that speaks to an event that happened in my life and that, you know, tugs at my heartstrings. If my poems can't do that, and in the case of these poems, I don't, I don't think that they succeed in doing that. I feel like they have to succeed somewhere else, which, and I don't know whether they do or not, but for me, the thing that I'm, that I'm trying is through affect and through emotion and letting the, there be a sense of emotion behind the language um, so that if nothing else, uh, an audience who, as you know, you mentioned you don't, you're not able to actually read it on the page. If you can't see it on the page to engage with these words and you're just sort of hearing them wash over you, then I hope at, at least that experience feels enlivening in some way. 
Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it, it does. I, I, I mean, it does communicate that way as well, uh, I think. So I'd love to hear another one. What is the, the next poem you're reading? Sure. Um, this one is called, <clears throat> sorry, let me clear my throat. This is reach out and into the crutch of the center left open to wind and rain. You can hold hands with an anemone over and over. A hitch in a will to listen, to bring ear to elbow and press the creases that breathe symmetrically or not at all. A practice of lifting against the outflow and gradually you are packing yourself into an ever smaller suitcase. What is weight? A place where we let fall the pieces held close to the chest. A space between vertebrae that resonates in wind. Tipped into pitch, riding against rain, we heft what's left of our shoulder and breach for unsettled terrain. Swaying, an eye faints with all the alarm of unspent currency. Even a spool of thread corrects itself twice a day. Let air overtake you, dodging updraft between hover and smear. Take a gauze to the tops of your fingers and spread the needle, burnishing currents down the part that feels most and best. Be abrupt. Be something other than what came to you. Be enraptured. Thank you. That's, that's, uh, that's a beautiful poem. It almost sounds um, ecstatic. You know that kind of I don't I don't know if that's 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 a genre or, or not, but <laughs> yeah. you know that that, that that kind of gnostic gospel type um, text where it's sort of like you know open your eyes like like wake up it's 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 such a right so something like that that's how it strikes me. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that that's how it feels. That's definitely how I feel when reading it. That there that there is. Um, Something ecstatic at play here for mm-hmm. sure, um, yeah. Especially with that, I, yeah, that ending, be be enraptured. It's a very hard thing to command anyone to do. Um, I feel like even just saying the words "be enraptured" kind of dismantles any any sense of rapture you might have been feeling. Um, you know, it, it, rapture has to come from a place inside, and you can't exactly will it into being. But maybe the act of trying to will it into being can itself be a kind of ecstatic experience. I like that. I think so. Right. That's the, that's the endless prayer or, or, you know, or the equivalent, right. The kind of, um, yeah, the kind of shadows or darkness you go through to, to get there. Right. Is, is sort of the equivalent. That's, that's interesting. Um, well, I'd like to hear one more. I know you have one more. Um, what is the next poem and, and where is that from? Yeah, this is from that same collection. I opted to only read you things that are works in progress um, as opposed to my published books um, just to, you know, to do something a little different. So this is Pattern on Pattern, All Things Permeated by Laundry and Mint, Stirred Cake, and Butter Cookies. An eye makes an excellent palm for holding the lasting impact of downhill stock car shear. What twists between you takes time to ravel, a thread that tethers your upturned understanding, brown and velour, to ear. Where you stand, minnows of light cross down, and cheeks of red and blue blow in from the marionette collar. That unburdened ampersand of shoulder-on-shoulder embrace as you face the camera tells of a tiled bath, an herbal laugh, a playing field of dusk-blooming fleas. 
Looking into your twinned brightness, I am thrown back and fall silent. Someone has knitted your everywhere, and of course I know who, but there's no holding in spite of her apron's penny whistle. No pressing clippings from strangers' gardens. Red makes jelly of the bone society when a chill secrecy upends the need for forward march. The noble duke yokes his burden to the past. What would it mean to follow you into the peephole pointed toward fluorescence? Where have you gone? Hold on. Hold one another's hands. Hold your horses. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. Thank you. That's a, that's a beautiful one to read for the third one. Uh, I don't know where to jump into with that, with that one. It's kind of just flowing over me that felt very, um, very powerful, very, and also very, very musical to me. Um, is there anything I'm glad that it felt musical. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I, think, I do think that yeah. a, lot, a lot of this work is being guided by music um, and thinking about associative uses of words. Um, this was of the three, I think this was the only one I read that has a speaking I in it. Um, and that's been um, showing up less and, and less in my work and, and more of um, uh, an address to a you rather than an I. Um, so for, for me, for me, this poem has a very specific meaning and reference point. Um, and what I'm, I'm interested in is, is what, what, what meanings and what references emerge for people who don't have the same sort of access to the narrative or, or image, really, in this case, behind this poem. Um, you could think of it as, as an ekphrastic poem. It's a poem that I wrote from looking at an image, um, but it's, a, it's a, like a family image. It's a family photograph. So it's not one that I would ever publish. It's not something that I think needs to be witnessed. Um, but for me, was a really important jumping off place for the emotions and ideas that are in the poem. Um, so I guess I don't know if that provides any kind of like any entrance. I don't want to ask you to, you know, to take it apart too much, but that that does make it clear. Um, and, you know, the idea of it being an acrostic poem about, a, you know, something visual, right? A visual work of art is also interesting because that's so open to interpretation itself, how we, mm-hmm. how we see images and how we um, digest them, right? That's, uh, mm-hmm. that's, you know, so as you said, you're interested in what other people's um, associations are. How do you find that? Do people, is that just how you want it to live in the world? Or do people tell you their associations and readings? How do you, how do you hear from people that way? Um, I only ever hear from friends who I share my work with uh, who can tell me what they're, what's coming through to them in the experience. Um, but I, and, and so for me, that's kind of the important first line. And then knowing that once the work goes out into the world, that its meanings are not the ones that I impose on them. On, on it at all, um, and, and wanting to be completely open to the meanings that other people bring to the text, which for me means looking pretty carefully at my, my word choices and my images to make sure that uh, it's less likely that the poem go in a direction that I would not want it to go in, um, which is not to say that I'm trying to control where it ultimately goes for a reader or listener, um, but that I just want to, I don't want to, I want to set the poem up for success as best I can for meeting a reader at a place where the reader feels interested and, and engaged 
um, rather than, say, turned off by what might look like excessive experimentation or nonsense. Um, I think, like, trying to set it up for success is the best way I can put it, sort of wanting my poem to put its best foot forward so that it can make a few connections, a few friends, if possible. I like that. I love that way of putting it. It's kind of, because, of course, it is like a child in the world that's, that's trying to, to meet people and make friends, right? <laughs> it, well, in your performance practice, you, you obviously have to think about the way in which anything you do is going to be interpreted by the audience. Um, how, does that, how does that process feel for you as you're you know, conceptualizing a performance? In performances, how the audience feels, well, you know, when it was something like giving out hugs or foot washings, it was, you know, we're both, like, touching people, so, um, but I guess, yeah, that wasn't everything. It, it, the way I, we were doing it for a while, is my wife and I, when we were, if that's the performance you're talking about, we've done several, but washing feet and giving out hugs in a storefront in the East Village we would sometimes videotape the people that were washing feet or giving hugs to who don't, we're not really chatting with at all. And then afterwards we'd ask them, who are we and what are we doing? (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that that would get people saying some unusual things and, you know, because it is sort of hard to get a perspective on what it is that you're doing and how it's really being, how it's being received, you know? And and of course, Mm -hmm. most people were kind of like, ah, I'm not sure. <laughs> You're in East Village, artist, I don't know. You know, it's, it's hard to put things in a, uh, you know, in a box too. And it's hard to talk about aesthetics, right? It's hard to talk about poetry or images as, as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that's true. Although everyone, I think, uh, I'm not everyone. I hope everyone, but that's not true. But many people feel something instinctively when they encounter a work of art or a work of literature um, and, and sometimes sort of silence the voice within themselves that says, like, I, I have an opinion or an understanding of this. Um, but, but there's but a powerful fact, emotional, so there's some kind of pathos right away that everybody connects to, you mean, on some level. Is that what you mean? Yeah, like I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure that the people who were having their feet washed had many thoughts about why this was being done and, you know, the significance of the act and what it felt like, um, but, but in a way felt the need to kind of censor that interpretive voice. Um, right, But right, I feel right, like it's true. like in our nature to try and understand. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's that's right, right? We, we try to make sense of something. We're trying, right? We're always trying to put it together to make sense. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, and I think I think that is a difficult thing. I mean, yeah, with my own work, I don't know which if you were referring to that work or the Museum of Non-Visible Artwork, but that work, which was a more recent project of mine, had that kind of double take. The audience didn't mm-hmm. get it at first, and then suddenly did get it. And the idea of the audience learning something to figure it out, you know was um was kind of a game and fun in itself but it it mm-hmm. played with that a little bit because you know you can either i mean you know hugs and foot washings are like that too you can either dismiss it and this is not something that's of interest at all or or take a leap i feel like people have to you know are taking a leap a little bit mm-hmm. i guess is what i'm saying well, you... as, as, a, as opposed to connecting with something right away yes right yeah requiring a leap i think that's that applies across the art. Mm. Um, yeah, and so, or being invited to take a leap when entering the work. Mm. 
I'm curious, were you well, already a parent when you did that performance? Was I already a parent? Yes. When we were doing the husband yeah. washings, we were a parent, yeah. Because I feel like, we, you know, for me, as a, as a parent encountering that work, and obviously I've only seen documentation, but, like, if someone put a Band-Aid on me and kissed my Band-Aid or someone washed my feet, I would be thinking about the things that I regularly do with my own children. And that range of reference obviously is so different for any individual encountering the work. They're going to bring to it what they, what they bring. Um, and I think that maybe there's a tendency to think like, oh, well, this is just me, right? That's, that's the meaning. That's an important point of reference for me encountering this work. But uh, there's a tendency to want to discount your own instinctive reaction like that. Um, but my hope is that, you know, these poems say, make a space for like, whatever you brought to this is the thing that was supposed to be here. And whatever, whatever you're going to take away from this is what you're supposed to take away from it, rather than there being one right reading or one, one right meaning being the one that I uh, imposed upon it, if that makes sense. Of course, yeah, that does make sense. And, and, and thank you for that. I, I want to ask you one more question, which is what are you reading at the moment? Um, so I just reread um, Renee Gladman's Houses of Ravica, uh, which is a phenomenal experimental novel. And I was reading it together with um, some students in uh, my class at UW Bothell. And it's the first time I've read the book with, with a class and, and um, not by myself. It's a book that I, I really enjoy that creates a kind of speculative world, a place called Ravica, where um, houses can move and houses can breathe. And there's this comptroller whose job it is to kind of know the coordinates of all of the houses, but they're having trouble locating this one house, which every, every time they go to the place where the house is supposed to be, it's not there or it's invisible. And so the whole novel is them trying to find this missing house. They can find the house that has the exact opposite coordinate um, with, with which this particular house is kind of in tension or in, in relation, in quantum relation, but they can't find the one house they're looking for. So it's a little bit of a detective novel. It's a little bit of a speculative fiction novel. It's definitely a little absurd, and it's super poetic. Um, and it's really, it was really a beautiful book to spend some time with this past week. So highly recommend it. And, and Renee Gladman, the author, is doing a series of lectures right now, the Bagley Wright Lecture Series, um, and has given just some really awesome presentations about what the relationship is between drawing and writing, um, because her practice sort of developed as she was writing a, this series of novels about Ravica. She also began drawing kind of like acemic writing, where um, she would allow her hand to make shapes on the page that were evocative of writing, but are, are meant to be legible as architecture. And so she's given some really fantastic talks about that and, and also has published some really beautiful um, drawings. So that's where, that's where my head has been in the past week. Thank you so much for that, Emma. That sounds fascinating. And thank you again for, for talking with me today. And thanks for all the work you're doing. I wish you well with uh, future projects and, and everything else. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. <laughs>